20 people or a thousand, that's a thousand people eating. Uh, so there's, so I think that, um, that our group today allows for us to kind of just be a little more intimate and kind of honest with each other and hopefully uh, that'll be the case. And uh, so we'll do that. Can I pray before we begin? God, thank you for this group who is here today, the, the faithfulness of uh, the folks who continue to move this church forward, for being the body of Christ in this neighborhood, for uh, being people who support and love one another as neighbors. Pray that you would give us insight and wisdom into how we can be better neighbors and love this community and each other so that we would be a better reflection of your love and grace and justice. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, one of the things that, that I've realized about myself, and maybe you recognize, maybe you're a good neighbor, but it's hard to be a good neighbor. To be really honest, like I've found through the years, it's easier to talk about being a good neighbor than it is to actually be a good neighbor. And I, uh, about a year ago, uh, there was this guy who was um, building, uh, renovating a house behind there. It happens to every neighborhood in Nashville, right? So this guy knocks down the fence at our house, and I'm just doing everything to like try to get in touch with this guy, and he's just like a jerk, and you know, I mean, he's just not like, he doesn't care that we live there, I have a daughter, my dogs are going to get out, you know, and so eventually he gets the place done, and this new, these new folks who, who you know, renovated, rented it out, uh, they move in, and almost instantly, like, you know, they, they leave their lights on at night, and I just kind of see them in my brain as like an extension of this guy, they have no connection, right? And it's like, oh, instead of like going over and getting to know them, I'm like mad, right? And it's like, oh, I'm not really being a good neighbor, am I? You know, and so I think that consistently, like, it's a struggle to be a good neighbor. I mean, just if we're honest, like, being a good neighbor requires like consistent, ongoing, like, commitment to, to knowing people, but also to like being graceful and instead of making quick judgments, like actually showing grace and and so there's this app, maybe you've heard of it, it's called the Nextdoor app. You ever heard of the Nextdoor app? Yeah, you, well, don't even look it up then if you don't know about it. But a lot of these neighborhoods in Nashville have, a, there's a website called the Nextdoor. Anybody ever heard of this? Am I talking to, okay. So Nextdoor has an app and, and basically it's like people in the neighborhood, the intention of it was set up to help people be better neighbors in the world today, right? So. But the reality of the Nextdoor app is that people get out there and they just complain about their neighbors. They're like, oh, and if they do this again, I'm going to get them. You know, like threats and like just nonsense. So um, about a year ago, uh, this, uh, let me tell you this, Nextdoor app, uh, it's such nonsense and drama that this young woman started another uh, app or another Twitter account and an Instagram account called The Best of Nextdoor. And so if you looked at like the Nextdoor's Twitter account, their Nextdoor app, just the regular app, they have about uh, 35,000 followers on Twitter. The best of Nextdoor has like 235,000 followers. So like the parody is way more uh, popular than the real thing. And so, um, so there's, I mean, and they retweet the drama that happens. They just love to share the drama. But about a year ago, um, one of the things that was on the Nextdoor was it's absolutely ridiculous, but it shows you kind of, this uh, person created a chicken bear. Now, I've never heard of a chicken bear, but this lady made a chicken, a, a bear out of chicken, and was trying to sell it to the neighbors on the next door app. 
I mean, it's, it's as ridiculous as it sounds. So when you leave here, what you need to do is, is you already kind of on the work. They're like, Google chicken bear. Some of you already are doing it. Um, it's so, and so the argument happened on the site. Like, you know, some people were like, this is like gross and like, what an inhumane thing. And other people were like, it's a great way to teach kids about eating chicken, you know. And it's just like, it just goes down from there. And so the intention of setting up this thing totally backfires that what is a tool to try to be a good neighbor ultimately leads to, you see it's gross, um, to, to things um, that actually don't help folks to be a good neighbor. And I would unfortunately say that too often the gospel or the, the Christianity, which is uh, when Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and soul, right? And the second one, second part of it, it doesn't say a whole other second commandment, so the second part of it, which is still part of one commandment, is to love your neighbor as yourself, is, is really difficult, right? And, and so, in fact, like, I went to seminary, and we had all these classes on worship and, like, studying, you know, how to praise Jesus and, like, uh, we didn't have a single class on the second part of loving your neighbor. So, like, <laughs> so it's like you go through, there's no loving your neighbor one-on-one. But it's the second part of the greatest commandment, and you go to seminary, you don't have a class on it. And so what I'm saying is, like, like it is a challenge to know how to best love our neighbors in a way that really honors them and, and, uh, and shows them kind of love and compassion. And in fact, one of the most unfortunate things that I think has happened, and one of the most dangerous things that happens in Christianity is when people use the scriptures to mistreat others. We were talking a little bit about this in our group today, is that when the justification, in fact, this recently happened in, in our own country, when asked uh, the current administration about why... Uh, why are you okay with separating families um, when they cross the border? Uh, the, the answer, when it becomes, uh, well, we believe in Scripture. Have you ever heard of Romans 13, where it says to, uh, that we must be, submit to all the laws? And, and you, we read it today, right? And so it's like that we must obey the laws. Like, so they, so the, when the justification becomes the Scriptures for a mistreatment of people, then I believe those who are outside of the body of Christ looks at the body and says, I don't want to be any part of that. Right? In fact, I have friends, uh, I've got several important people, a lot of friends who don't believe in Jesus. A lot of friends of mine actually used to believe and have walked away from the faith. In fact, one of my favorite artists, musicians, like recently has done a public breakup of his faith. You know, it happens, you know, that's kind of an artist thing. And he'll be back. <laughs> But, but even more so, my mentor when I was in college about 20 years ago um, was a guy who started an urban missions group. In, and we worked in Philadelphia. And, and the guy who, like, mentored me and prayed for me to go into, like, urban ministry work in the last couple of years totally deconverted from uh, his faith and now is a humanist chaplain, right? And his whole deal is that he just felt like those who claim the name of Jesus who were followers of Jesus, their behaviors and their justifications for the mistreatment of others was scripture. And so what is supposed to be the good news, when the good news is twisted to justify mistreating others, 
When you mistreat, when you twist the good news of Jesus, what you have is twisted religion. And so my hope and my belief is that we can begin the work, and I believe this church is, a, church is committed to this kind of work, of reconstructing, instead of deconstructing the gospel, reconstructing the gospel in a way that, that shows the love and, and truth and justice of Jesus Christ. And so, so, so that's my hope, uh, that we would, would be the kind of folks who do that. Unfortunately, we have a history in this country of using uh, scripture to mistreat folks. Uh, it goes back a long time, right? And it's, even in 1850, there was uh, the Fugitive Slave Act, right? And the Fugitive Slave Act essentially said that uh, those slaves that were let go have to be brought back to follow the laws. And, and then they were like, how do you, why do you think this is okay? Because scripture says that we should follow the laws of the land, right? Now the problem to me isn't, you see, here's the problem for someone like myself, is I actually believe in scripture. I actually believe in the, in fact, I wouldn't be here today if I hadn't had a real encounter with the living God through Jesus Christ. I'll just tell you that. So I'm not someone who's like, ah, pick and choose your scriptures, you know, whatever. Like I really believe in the heart of the gospel. But I actually think that the more you dig into scripture, and the more you get to know the person of Jesus, the what you find is in Romans, for instance, if you continue to read through the scripture, it says, what really sums up all these laws, though, is love. Right? And so, it, and so, it, so it's like, how can you read scripture and take it out of context without ignoring the whole of scripture that goes all the way back in the Old Testament that talks about the way we treat the alien and the foreigner in the land is how we will be judged by our faith. And so you just, time and, time and time again, it talks clearly about the way that we should love our neighbors. And we take pieces and parts, and people identify us as Christians, as people who, the things we're against, instead of the things we're for. And so my hope is that, that as we continue to grow in our faith, that we would become people who understand that we're called to reconstruct our faith in a way that people look at and say, these people love. The people of love and grace justice and those are the people who can give the example for what it means to look like Jesus Christ and to follow the way of Christ we um, my my wife and I in um, 2007 started uh, a little nonprofit called Harvest Hands and we had this conviction that uh, we were to really learn how to love our neighbors well, right? So this, actually the scripture from Matthew that we read, it says, go to the people right here in your neighborhood. Um, in fact, this is, was like a real strong conviction for us because like we would see folks who were committed, they'd say, oh, we want to love our neighbors and what they do is like they just, you know, go somewhere else and love people and they come back home and, you know, I mean, you've seen it, like there's a storm, put all the water in there and it's not always, it's not a bad thing but this is what would happen is they get the water, take it down where the storm was, and they come back home, and the person with their water shut off because they couldn't pay the bill, they don't really care about it. I mean, it's crazy. And so, so we're, we're like, had this conviction that Jesus is like, the people closest to you are where you're called to start with first. So we moved to, um, to the neighborhood, which is now Wedgwood, Houston. It really wasn't called that at the time. They, realtors like to name things, you know, to make them special, you know? And so to raise the price of the, you know, it works. So it was like the neighborhood by the fairgrounds that you didn't want to go to. And so we moved there and 
Uh, and here's an idea. Let me just tell you a little bit of how much the neighborhood has changed. We bought a house in the hundred thousands, which is a lot of money. But at the time, it's like we, we could buy that. The same house today would cost 400000 2007 to 2019. That's how much the neighborhood has changed, right? So we had a bunch of kids in that neighborhood. And we realized something really quickly. That there's a difference between going and trying to save people and be the savior of a neighborhood and being neighbors. Big difference, isn't it? Like a, someone who just thinks they're the savior comes in, I'm going to fix things and, and I'm going to help these people do things for them. And usually it's not neighbors who do that. It's usually someone who kind of commutes from somewhere, comes in, they fix you and goes back, right? But I, I think, and I'm not going to say that like we're Jesus, but Jesus never commuted from heaven to earth to kind of help. He lived among the people, right? And so, so we, and this, what's difficult for this idea for me is I'm a, an Enneagram, I'm a two, right? And there's not, I talk to a lot of guys, there's not like a lot of guy twos, right? And I, I'm still struggling sometimes to believe it. But someone told me that Jack from This Is Us is a two. So I was like, oh, that's fine. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, so, the, so, so sometimes it's, I, I want to help people. And so, it's difficult sometimes if you are geared towards being a helper to realize that other people have things to offer and they can help you. And so when we started Harvest Hands, one of the things I had to unlearn was that I'm not here to fix anybody. I'm here to walk alongside my neighbors. In fact, John Perkins, who's the founder of the Christian Redevelopment Association, who's my hero, says that the greatest form of poverty is when someone believes that they have nothing to offer. So, so if... In our work, we convince people that, we, that we'll do everything for you. Instead of giving people opportunities to do things, then they become disempowered instead of empowered. And so we started this deal. And one of the first things that happened in our work um, after moving to that neighborhood was we, um, we met some folks. Uh, well, let me back up. We, we bought a house that was moved into our neighborhood from Green Hills. You know what Green Hills and the mall is, right? So the folks in Green Hills are like, we don't want this house anymore, you know, we're just gonna move it. And this guy moved into our neighborhood, turned it the wrong way, like it looked like a shotgun house, and we bought it because we bought a drug house across the road. And so we, they were right across the road, so we like bought this house, and we started an after school program with like 12 kids in the neighborhood. And uh, I mean, you're not supposed to do this, by the way. You're not supposed to start an after-school program in a residential house. We didn't like the guy selling drugs two doors down didn't ask permission either. And so we're like, so we're like, we're just gonna do this thing, right? And so we 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 start this deal. And the first family we meet is a family uh, they call the Torres family. So they move in. Uh, they're in the neighborhood, and Hiel and Ruben Senior and David and Ruben they move in there, and they become they become like. Uh, they help us really, they're neighbors, and they help us kind of start this ministry to kids in the neighborhood. So we are, so we're having lunches there, we're doing like neighborhood lunches, we're getting to know them, and we realize like they have more potential to reach our neighbors than we do, right? They're from here, I mean, they're from here, but they, they know a lot of uh, folks from the neighborhood, and so, uh, in fact, they're from Mexico, and they moved there uh, because uh, they've been threatened with their lives. And so they brought their kids, their whole, I mean, they ran businesses, they were leaders in their neighborhood. They brought every, every, they had a huge house, they still own it there. They brought everything in their life in two suitcases to America and moved into our neighborhood. And so we started this program and, um, 
and we had this handful of kids, and I could get kids to come. Little kids, they love, oh, come play up and put puppets and singing, and, you know, after school. But the teenagers in our neighborhood had no interest in coming to an after school program. This wasn't cool. But what they did have an interest in doing, in fact, they were doing this just illegally a lot of times during the times after, they had an interest in making money. And so I was like, we should start some businesses. We, you know, at the time, you got to understand, people were not doing social enterprise. There wasn't even a term. I mean, Tom's shoes was kind of on the scene. But, and so we, so we started this deal, and I was like, we can start a coffee roasting company. So my wife was like, all right, I'll make handmade soap with the young women. She, uh, and I was like, I'll take the guys, and we'll make coffee. Because I had a home coffee roaster. I was just interested in it. And, uh, and so we, the guy, it's ridiculous, really. The guys would come into the, to our little house, and every time we'd meet, we'd have, you ever seen a home roaster? They're like these six-ounce roasters. I mean, nerds, you get these things, and we'd make coffee at home. And, uh, and we would sit there, and I would try to teach them about coffee, these the 12 and 13-year-old guys. And no, they didn't drink coffee. And we'd try to roast it. And what would happen is we'd set off the smoke alarms. Like, I pray for you. I can't even hear you, you know. And it was just ridiculous. And the girls would, um, they would make soap. And they'd go out to sales events. And they would sell it. And they would come back with all this cash. At the time, we were like, we'll just give you what you make. And like, they'd come out with 200 bucks. And the guys would be like, we ain't making jack. <laughs> and, and, and so they were like mad. At, they were pissed off at me. And they were like, they were like we're quitting. Like, no, don't quit. Like, like the girls are doing great, but like, we'll get there. And so we went and had a meeting with a guy named Cal Turner. Cal's family started a little company called the Dollar General. And uh, we went and met with Cal, and we're like, hey, I got these guys, and we want to start this business, you know. Um, and he said, well, <laughs> this is crazy, you know. He says, if you go back with those guys and write a business plan and bring it to me, I'll buy your coffee roaster. I'm like, dude, like this is like $30,000 gift, right? And I mean, this guy's a billionaire, but to me, I'm like, that's crazy, you know? And so we went back, and the only business plan I've ever written in my life. I went to seminary, you gotta understand. It was written with a bunch of teenagers, presented to the former CEO of Dollar General, right? And so we bring it back to, to Cal, and I just thought, like, he's gonna give us a check, you know? Like, we're just gonna go get the roaster. And he's like, wait a second. He looks at it. Oh crap, you know, he forgot, you know, or something. And he's like, you need to change some things, which is, that's, to me, that's good teaching, right? You, and so he says, at the time, you gotta understand, we had a mentoring program that was called Mimic. I was like, you gotta mimic the way of Jesus, right? You gotta imitate Jesus. That's a great name. And so I was like, hey, what do y'all wanna name the coffee? Mimic Coffee. And Cal says, that's the worst name I've ever heard for a coffee company. It sounds like imitation coffee. I was like, that's why you made the billions, man. And so, so he's like, name it after something in the neighborhood. And the guys are like, well, the Humphrey Street is this old church that they gave us. He's like, um, well, the kids are like, let's name it Humphrey Street Coffee Company. And so we did that, a couple other things, and different projections, you know, stuff that business people talk about. And we brought it back, and, um, and sure enough, um, the, he gave us a check, and we, we, I took a, this is crazy, my mom would never let me do this. I took a 12-year-old, we got in a plane, and we flew from Nashville to Sandpoint, Idaho, to learn how to roast coffee from a guy named Stephen Diedrich. Our roaster is a Diedrich roaster, which us and Crema and several other folks in the city use. Stephen Diedrich taught me and Ruben to roast coffee when he was 12. 
It's crazy. It's like learning to drive from Henry Ford. And so, so we fly out there, we learn to roast coffee, we come back, we start this coffee roasting company. And um, it, was, it was insane because like, here's a kid who helps start a business and then it, it, it's like if you believe in the potential of people to partner with you instead of doing things for people, what can happen is amazing. And so we come back, we start this company and about last year we started a, a coffee shop called Humphrey Street Coffee. Shop. It's over in the Wedgwood Houston neighborhood. It's actually uh, interesting. It's in the space where we used to run after school programs. So if you've ever been in there, like there's a library in the back where the back deck is, like there's no deck, you know, and there, it was just, it, I mean, we didn't have any air conditioning. It was like really intense. And so, so we started a shop there and uh, I looked at Ruben and I said, hey man, like this place would not be here without you. I mean, it's just like, and he, now he runs in, he's 23. And runs the entire roasting operation. He mentors. He's the head of all the mentoring deals. And so he's a, a leader's come up through the deal and he runs the thing. And so Ruben, um, he gets a scholarship to college uh, to go to Lipscomb. It's, he gets a Latino leadership scholarship. And they said to him, you're the only uh, student who's ever started a business. <laughs> so he gets this Latino leadership scholarship. The guy made like a 30 on his ACT. Bright kid. So he gets this. But here's the thing. He's doing school, and he has, because he, is, he came here as a kid, undocumented with his parents, and he's, he's gone to school here all his life, right? I mean, he, went to public, he lived in the United States longer than he's lived, than he lived in Mexico. He knows English better than he knows Spanish. Like, like the kid has grown up through this school system, goes to school there. He's a DACA student. What he has to do to pay for school, he has to pay for the other half. You know, Lipscomb's not cheap, right? The other part of what he has to do is he has to come up with the other half of his tuition because guess what? Students like Ruben, they get no financial aid federally. It doesn't matter if you lived here, went to school here, right? And so he gets to the point, he's so frustrated, he just drops out of, of, of school. This kid who's 30 as ACT, studying like in calculus three, you know, he like finally just like forget it. And I had this sense, I was like, you know, like what if our churches were so committed to the gospel that we weren't sending money and, um, and folks from, the, the, from our churches on mission trips to Mexico with thousands of dollars and doing missionary tours. And what if we collected that same money put a pot together to actually love the neighbors and the kids in the neighborhood and help pay that difference in the school, right? So, so it looks sometimes different. I and mean, it's not that it's bad when we go places and love people, but the question that I think is clear in Scripture is what do we do with those closest to us? How do we offer love to our neighbors? And so, so what if we did things like that as a church? And I mean, I think we have an amazing opportunity, this church here, and, you know, and I'm, I'm saying this to half the church. Half the church is out doing amazing. Uh, they're going to conferences, like you said. Like the, the rest of us, we don't, must not appreciate the environment. And so, and so, um, so the, the church here, there's a lot of Latino folks here. And, and what if we built bridges and relationships with the folks at the Premier Iglesia? Like we, and even folks in this neighborhood, we can continue to grow and reach out and build bridges in, in a community and figure out how we can best love our neighborhood you know, 
and what they can bring to the table as well, not just how we can help folks. What, what are the folks, you know, we can also have some tamales and pupusas in here for lunch also, right? I mean, and so it's amazing what, what happens when we, everybody comes together. And I guess what I, what I want us to hear is like, how do we become the people of Jesus that reconstruct the gospel in a way that people are drawn to it? That people who might normally say, I'm not interested in that Christian thing because what Christians stand for these days, man, they don't seem to love me. And I feel excluded. The issues of justice that I'm passionate about, the people of Jesus should be the ones most passionate about, right? So how do we become that, that kind of church who continues uh, to, to reconstruct the gospel in a way that is committed to the heart and the core of loving our neighbors as ourselves. And so my hope is that we can commit to that together and we can be that kind of church. And my hope is that, uh, that, that we won't give up the fight and give up hope and, um, and that together we'll be that kind of church, all right? In Jesus' name, amen. Um, let's pray again. God, we thank you for everybody in this room and for those who are not with us today we pray for them too we pray for the children we thank you for their lives and for the joy they bring to this place help us to to be the kind of church uh, that is unafraid to stand up you know uh, i think back to the civil rights god movement in this country even and it's those who were willing to not get up from their seat uh, those people who were part of the church who were willing to stand up and and, and make a difference. And help, may we be the kind of people that stand up today in this culture uh, with your love and your grace that shows people another way uh, that re reflects your justice and your grace and your kindness and goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.